But we're looking this week again at the Pentateuch, and we're looking at the book of Exodus um, to make up for taking a week off uh, from the Bible a couple of weeks ago. I want to cover both our overview, introductory overview, as well as the more lengthy overview today. Uh, we'll take a little bit longer, probably, and it might be that we just go ahead and do that for uh, one or two of the other books because uh, we can combine things and to make a little bit longer lesson and yet cut the duration of the semester a little shorter and still cover uh, the necessary material. I do rem want to remind you that what we're looking at is simply an overview, an introduction, some things that would um, allow you to have a little bit better of a foundation and a framework to build upon. So that when you take these things, you progress and go much farther in your studies, learning and growing in these things. Um, because that's the intent. It's not just to um, tell you knowledge and us leave it there. It's certainly not about showing you what I know and how smart I am. But rather to provide a framework to be a blessing so that from here on out, you learn and you grow. And you surpass me and anyone else that would teach you in so many ways, both in your knowledge and the practical, sanctifying results of the knowledge. So we're looking at the book of Exodus, and you can see, even in the term, you can kind of see similarity to the word we use for exit. They're leaving Egypt over and over throughout the uh, New Testament. If you'll notice in the notes, Mark chapter 7, verse 10, chapter 12, verse 26, John chapter 1, verse 17, chapter 6, verse 32, chapter 7, verse 19, Acts chapter 7, verse 44, Hebrews 8 and 5, as well as 9 and 19, present to us Moses as the author of Exodus. Usher dates it again somewhere between 1491 and 1451, during that 40-year period of time between their leaving Egypt and going into the land of Canaan before, right before Moses' death, <coughs> rather, before they go into the land of Canaan. Probably, um, if you'll notice, Exodus is not covering a huge amount of time. It's a very brief and amount of time, a very small window after they leave uh, the land of Egypt. Most of it um, ceases at Mount Sinai, probably within just a matter of weeks or a few months. They come to Sinai, they stay there, and they encamp there. Um, you'll notice that, um, obviously, the setting is the exodus. Their exit from Egypt and their formation into more of a people for the Lord. Um, chapter 17 of Exodus, verse 14, well, Numbers 33 and Q. Deuteronomy 30, verse 10. And more uh, importantly to uh, the attribution of the authorship to Moses is found in 2 Chronicles, chapter 30, verse 18, and chapter 33, verse 8, where even the chronicle, writing probably after the Babylonian captivity, also attributes it to Moses and not some post-Babylonian Jew or group of Jews who sat down and wrote different things and somebody sat down and compiled them and pretended that it was an ancient book. Uh, that's important. Um, 
What are some important events in Exodus? Um, slavery. The oppression of Israel by the Egyptians. It's an interesting thing to note that many, many years later, the Jews of Jesus' day had in some ways forgotten this. In chapter 8 of John, they said, We're the Abraham's seed, and we're never in bondage to any man. Um, it's amazing because every year they celebrated the Passover, remembering their deliverance from that bondage, and yet they were arrogant enough to say they had never been slaves. You see Moses' birth and his calling, the plagues upon Egypt, the Passover, the Exodus, the provision of manna, the miraculous gift of water from the rock, a victory in chapter 17 over Amalek, the giving of quail, the giving of the law, the blood of the covenant, as well as the tabernacle, the priesthood, and Moses' 40 days in the mount, the sin of the golden calf, and their worship thereof. Chapters 33 and 34 present much about the glory of God. And then you move on to the building of the tabernacle and the dedication thereof, and how that they're led by God in the presence of God in the pillar of cloud by day, the pillar of fire by night. Um, there are four five important people who stand out, Pharaoh, Moses, Aaron, Bezalel, Joshua, and then of course all of the people. There are important doctrines such as you could find in Exodus chapter 9 verse 16 and chapter 12 verse 12, the glory of God and his victory over Egypt and the gods of Egypt. Uh, redemption by blood, powerful redemption the leadership of God, the law of God, the worship of God. And then there's faith that we can read of even in Hebrews chapter 11, verses 20 through 26. Um, you also see this is a record of God keeping his promises and his covenant with Abraham. He made a promise in Genesis chapter 15 that after four generations that Israel would come out of Egypt, that God would take care of them, and God has kept this promise. Uh, we can see the storyline, the continuity from Genesis to Exodus when you find that Israel's gone into Egypt, Joseph dies in Egypt, he makes mention of his bones so that Israel would remember to take his bones and not leave him in Egypt, but they would take his bones when they leave. Exodus picks right up. It's a smoothly flowing story. It doesn't cover every single historical incident, by the way. I want us to remember that because what we read in the Bible is not pure history for history's sake. It is history for the glory of God. It is redemptive history. It is a record of God's redemptive work as he works to bring about the coming of the Christ in the fullness of time through a family, a man, a family, a nation back down to a family and a woman. And it's the work of God in redeeming humanity. And so you look at that and you realize we're not going to cover every single his, his, excuse me, <coughs> historical thing that happened to Israel, but the important things and important doctrines because Honestly, when all is said and done, it matters not who writes history. All history has an agenda. All history has a slant. All history has a certain presuppositions and reasonings behind 
it's being written. And sacred history records the sacred work of God in sacred events. Um, there's a Godward focus. The word, the simple, small word, my, in the book of Exodus, brings to light some 70 some odd instance of God speaking of my people, my plagues, my name. And so it's a revelation of God. It's about God as well. And that's so important because if we're not careful, especially in our day, our humanity wants to focus on what does the Bible say to me? What does it mean to me? Where do I fit in this picture? And especially our narcissistic, egotistical society today in the U.S., especially, we want it to be about us. And this is about God. And when I ask how I fit in this story, it must be understood that the story is not about me. It is about God, and I must subjugate myself and submit myself to Him. Important things to apply, we should trust God for redemption and deliverance. Chapter 15 shows us that we should worship God. By the way, we should do so verbally. We should do so exuberantly. We should do so gladly and joyfully. Something that most of us not only have not been taught to do and have often failed to do, we've often resisted it because of people who take it to um, unwholesome extremes. And balance is important there. Chapter 19, verse 24. It's about law-keeping and covenant-keeping, but it's also important to see it's about that being only done by means or through blood sacrifice. We should seek God's glory and give willingly for God's work in chapters 33 and 34. And of course, always following God's leadership. So we want to look and see that the purpose is to show that God, the Lord, Jehovah, the great I Am, keeps covenant with His people. He called Abraham and gave him promises, chose him, then he chose Jacob, he chose Israel, chapter 19 of Exodus, verses 5 and 6, he chose Israel to be his people, a chosen people, a peculiar people. And so you notice this, and you go back to the beginning, and it just keeps the stream, you see Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 28, the dominion mandate, and how that man was placed into the garden, and he was to take dominion over the land, and he was placed in a certain locality. Abraham was promised the land. Israel is now going to take possession of the land and do what? They were going to exercise dominion in that land and in that locality as people who are the image of God and the people of God. Ultimately, in keeping with the promise, the great redeemer, the seed of Abraham, the seed of the woman, will do likewise, and he will change all the world. This interesting note, when you turn, by the way, to Romans chapter 4, we talk about the land of Canaan as a promise, and yet Paul said that God promised Abraham that he would be heir of the world. So let's not lose focus of what is important as we go through the progressive storyline of the Bible, and that is the fact that God has promised far, far more than just that little Rhode Island-sized spot in the Middle East for the people of God and for Israel. He promised, through faith, the world. Now let that be as it may. Um, 
you see in chapter 1 through chapter 4, the preparation column of Moses the Redeemer. Chapter 1, there's oppression. Chapter 2, there's the preparation of Moses. Moses um, has some similarities here. Moses is born, in what happens? Satan, in seeking to stop the propagation and the seed coming into the world, seeks to kill all the children through Pharaoh, Satan the serpent, just like he does in Matthew chapter 2 at the birth of Christ. Another parallel is, is there's Moses, the deliverer. He's delivered in an ark to deliver the people of God. Go back to Noah. There's Noah. A deliverer. How is he delivered to spare the people of God in the ark? Not only that, but the Egyptian people worship so many of the animals around about them and definitely worship the river Nile that overflowed its bank, giving them some wonderful delta soil in which to plant and to live. And they worship it as the source of life. And yet it's teeming with crocodiles and hippos. And after three months of faithfully hiding their child, Moses trusts her child to the Lord in that ark in the bulrushes in the river, and God delivered him and shows his superiority over the gods of Egypt where Moses didn't die in the river Nile. Moses is rescued. And who, by whom is he rescued? <coughs> Pharaoh's daughter. Moses is nursed up. By whom is he nursed up? By his own mother, and she's paid to do so. Question that we probably could ask ourselves is Did Moses, in choosing to make the choice to suffer affliction with the people of God, as we read in Hebrews chapter 11, verses 23 through 26, choosing rather not to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, but to suffer with God's people, did he realize that true kingship and dominion could only be exercised and realized and enjoyed by partaking in the Abrahamic covenant by faith? I think that's very possible. You see Moses kill an Egyptian. Pharaoh seeks his life once again. And he flees Egypt. He's 40 years old. Well, think about this. And he's gone for 40 years. He marries um, kind of into royalty in the area where he goes. The daughter of the high priest of Midian. And he stays there for 40 years. He's 80 years when God calls him. We've covered a lot of time in three chapters. He's 80 years old. Even though he lives to be around 120 years of age, um, you've got the greater majority of his life already behind him. When a man ought to be slowing down, Moses is stepping up and just beginning his life. Just beginning his serving. You notice that God has revealed to Moses in chapter 1, or chapter 3, rather, verses 1 through 15. We need to be noticed that, to notice that as um, that bush is on fire and it's not consumed and Moses' curiosity draws him closer, that as he steps closer, he's told to approach God barefoot. He's on holy ground. He's to have nothing intervening between him and God. He's to not have anything defiling between him and God, as such as the bottom of his shoes. And he steps forward and he has to approach God in reverence fear. Never let us forget this. We have a flippant sort of worship today. Much that is called contemporary worship with the contemporary Christian music 
is very compromising. It compromises in doctrine. It compromises in the way people look. I mean, we can look like people who belong in barrooms. And they say, people say it doesn't matter. And yet, most of us would dress up to meet the president. And yet, we don't care how we look, many of us, when we go and meet with God's people in God's house, saying that we're worshiping him and we're learning of him. Where God calls us that our hearts would be showing up on our outside and reverence will be seen. And there's more could be said about that. I'm going to stop right there. But we're to hold him in awe. We're to approach him carefully. It is not a matter that as long as a person worships God. Jesus said we must worship God in spirit and in truth. And if we're to worship God in truth, the context of John 4.24 means the truth is the truth about who God is, what he demands. God hasn't left it open to us to settle how worship is to be. He has left it for us to submit to him in worship. Otherwise, we're not yielding to him. If we dictate what worship is rather than God, then we're really worshiping ourselves more than we are him. And just stop and think on that and take some time with this because later on there's going to be a great error in Exodus chapter 32 where they say they're worshiping the Lord. And they're actually worshiping a figment of their own imagination and the creation of their own hands. Let us not be casual in worship. We don't have to be extremely formal like the Catholics or Presbyterians and Episcopalians. But we cannot be lackadaisical and casual and careless. When we sing, God call Moses, God send Moses, God confirm through him casting the rod on the ground and turning to a snake and him picking it back up, his hand turning leprous and then being cleansed again by God, that Moses would go. Then you see us move on to the work of redemption covering chapter 4, verse 27 through chapter 18, verse 27. And you see the impression increases. I mean, they make the people of Israel work harder and harder. And they cry out for mercy. And God reminds Moses in chapter 6, Abraham knew me as God Almighty. He knew me as El Shaddai, the all-sufficient, exalted, all-powerful God. He didn't have the full understanding that you're going to have of me as Jehovah or Yahweh, the great I Am. He knew me by that name, but he didn't enter into the pleasures and joys of the revelation of myself as you are. And so God reveals himself to Moses and assures Moses, and Aaron is there to help him, and you see ten plagues. The river of Nile they worship turned to blood. The frogs, that amphibious animals they worship, all over the land. Lice covers the land. Flies are all over the place. Their cattle die from grievous diseases. Boils are on man and beast. And at this point, God rebukes Pharaoh and tells him, the only reason that you're Pharaoh is because I've raised you up to glorify myself in you. He sends hail. He sends locusts. He sends darkness. And then he, at the time of Passover, sends the death angel and kills the firstborn of Egypt. Do you know something that happens through all of this? These things happen to the Egyptians. Living in the same land are the people of Israel. and They're experiencing none of these things. Remember 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. The Lord knoweth how to deliver the godly out of temptation 
and to reserve the wicked into the day of judgment to be punished. So then you have the promise and the warning of the death angel coming through. They're to take their lamb, separate that lamb, examine that lamb, find it in every way after examination to be a spotless lamb, to sacrifice the lamb, to put the blood all over their doors, signifying that it surrounds and covers them, and that where they're firstborn, get this, every firstborn child in all the land would die, even Israel's firstborn, except there's a lamb that dies in the place of the firstborn in the homes of the children of Israel. Israel is not delivered because they're a righteous people. They're not delivered because they're a good people. They're not delivered because they're an oppressed people. They're not delivered because they're a poor people. Modern day idea is called liberation theology. It's the marrying, the prostitution of the Bible, where Christianity, so-called, is married to communism, says Israel was delivered because God favors oppressed people. No. God favors oppressed people who trust Him. And He didn't call them to rise up in a rebellion or anything like that. He delivered them through the blood. They deserve to die too. But there was a substitute. John the Baptist comes on the scene and points to Jesus and says, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. Paul says, Christ is our Passover, who sacrificed for us. We're delivered by the blood of a lamb, without blemish and without spot. Revelation 5 says that the lamb was slain, and now we're redeemed and made kings and priests to our God. They come out of Egypt, and God leads them. Notice in chapter 13, God was in the cloud, the Lord. He's, there's a visible, guiding, and protective presence during the daytime, protecting them from the harshness of the sun when the heat is a cloud. They come to the sea. Pharaoh's heart is hardened to follow them. Israel cries out in distress. Notice, Israel cries out in distress. God answers. What does the Bible promise us? Whosoever should call upon the name of the Lord should be saved. Psalm 50, verses 14 and 15. Offer unto God thanksgiving. Pay thy vow unto the Most High. Call upon me in the day of trouble, and I will deliver thee, and thou shalt glorify me. And so God calls on Moses, commands him, stretch his hand out over the sea. Moses says, y'all stop a minute. Settle down. Stand still. See the salvation of God. Later, David says, be still and know that I am the Lord, that I am God. And Israel, that sea opens up. They walk through. The cloud stands above them and behind them, separating them from the Egyptians, slowing the Egyptians down because they can no longer see from the thickness of the cloudy fog, the presence of the Lord. And Israel goes through. And they don't even get their feet muddy. There's not an infirm or weak person. There were no stretchers. There were no wheelchairs. There were no crutches and walkers when Israel came out of Egypt. Everybody was hale and hearty and strong. And they walk out of there. And over two million people probably, that sea is divided wide enough that who knows how many go through there side by side. And for hours and hours and hours, they flood through and they cross through the other side. And there's an interesting thing that you see right here. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 through 4 says, Israel was baptized unto Moses. 
This is important in numerous ways. One is, notice, number one, biblical baptism in the New Testament when it comes to water baptism follows redemption by the blood of Christ and the power of God. Just as the Passover lamb was sacrificed and God with great power and stretched out arm has delivered Egypt, now, afterward they're baptized. Notice number two, that baptism is an identification. Israel identified themselves with Moses, who later we'll see in Deuteronomy 18 as a type of Christ, also Acts chapter 7. They identified themselves with Moses as they're baptized in the cloud and in the sea. Baptism in the water identifies us with Jesus. That's important because it, when you read the word far or unto, like we are, I baptize you with water unto repentance, or repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of the Lord Jesus for the remission of sins in Acts 2.38. It speaks of an identification. They weren't baptized to receive Moses into their hearts. They were identifying themselves, saying we're following his leadership. And he was a type of Christ. And when we're baptized, we have to be, true baptism is after salvation by the blood of Christ and the power of God and identifying ourselves with him as he has saved us. Notice the theme of the Exodus. Hosea chapter 11 verse 1. I called my son, my child, my Israel out of Egypt. Matthew chapter 2 says that Jesus, after they fled from of Jerusalem down into Egypt. Joseph took his child. He said it was to fulfill Hosea chapter 11 verse 1. I called when Israel was a child then called on my son out of Egypt. You see the parallels of the exodus. There was an exodus from Jerusalem into Egypt but God caused them to leave Egypt so that Jesus could be back in the land in uh, Bethlehem or rather um, Galilee so that he could fulfill his place and step into his ministry as the true Adam, the true Israel, the true Moses, the true Savior, the true Redeemer. There's another thing we need to see. We'll um, notice this. There's a theme of separation. From the beginning, God has separated things and he has separated peoples. This is important to note. We've got to recognize this in our day. We may be a people as Baptists who have for a long time been so exclusivistic with that we thought that there were hardly anyone else other than us worshiping God. And that's been taken too far by some. I realize, I realize that and recognize that. The, the other side is, is now you've had the ecumenical movement that brings all people who say they know Jesus together as if somehow or another, even in the last 10 or 15 years, there's been this evangelicals and Catholics together. As if Catholics, depending on their works, depending on the Mass, depending on prayers to Mary, depending on um, prayers to the saints, depending on their good works and confession to the priest, are actually going to heaven. And so we've, we've come to the point now that we're, we're willing, many people among us are willing to accept anything and anybody and say, Oh, we shouldn't judge. The thing is, is God has already exercised judgment in many instances, and he called his people out of Egypt. From the beginning, he called material out of nothing. 
He made being out of non-being. He brought time out of eternity. He created the heavens and the earth and distinguished them one from the other. He separated the light from the darkness. He separated the dry land from the seas. He separated the beast from humans. He separated and made a distinction between male and female. He separated Cain from his family. He separated Abram from Lot. He separated Lot from Sodom. In the book of Leviticus, he gave us commands of holiness, of separation from the world around us, from the worldly ways around us, from the worldly dress, from the worldly foods and the worldly actions. And some of these things, you'll find differences in the New Testament, but the principles still remain so that when you come to 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14 through chapter 7, verse 1, he calls on us to separate from unbelievers. Romans chapter 16, verse 17, he calls on us to exercise a doctrinal separation. He calls on us in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 to exercise a moral separation. He calls on us in Titus chapter 3 verse 10 to separate from heretical or schismatic and divisive people. You can see that in the, uh, the epistles of John as well where doctrine and practice matter to the degree that there are things that are going to divide us and we must separate if we are, in, as we follow God, if we are to be faithful to God. Remember there are things that are different and they're not the same. And Amos chapter 3 verse 3 asks the question, can two walk together except they be agreed? You have to be going the same direction to walk together. And that means you have to have an agreement. But when you're going opposite directions, you have to realize how necessary it is that separation is inevitable. Someone has to walk with the other and go the same direction if we refuse to separate. That means if we refuse to separate, we're going to be going in many cases, and in many ways, the wrong direction, and it matters not how sincere we are. This is extremely important as a principle as we're going through. Notice when you see this as well, they come out on the other side, and God closes that sea on Pharaoh. Many of them are congealed in the depths of the sea, never to be seen again. Probably a few wash up on the seashore. Israel, in chapter 14, verse 31, believes God. They believe the Lord and his servant Moses. It's interesting to notice that faith begets more faith. You see that in John chapter 2, verse 11. Well, in chapter 44, verse 46 through 54, in chapter 20, verse 8, that faith results in God responding and showing himself and our faith being increased. And then in chapter 15, there's praise. Remember in chapter 9, verse 16, that was God's intent. Chapter 2 of Joshua, verses 8 through 13, Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 10, Psalm 106, verse 8, tells us that all of this redounds to the glory of God, not just at that moment, but 40 years later and many centuries later, and here we are, 2,400 years later probably, more or less, and God is still honored for what he did that day. Never, please let us never underestimate the passion of God to exalt himself 
and his jealousy for his name and his glory. He said in Isaiah 42 and verse 8, I am the Lord. I'm Jehovah. That is my name. And my glory will I not give to another, neither my praise to graven images. Chapter 19 through 40, you have the giving of the law. Over half of the chapters in Exodus deal with Israel receiving the law, having the law explained, having case law presented, having the tabernacle presented and modeled and um, established according to the model and according to the law and the law of um, the priesthood established. And so you see in chapters 19, verse 24, you have commandments, statutes, judgments, and the dedication of the people. The law is given at Sinai. And um, it's an awesome, fearful holiness in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 18 through 28, that the writer says, Moses said, I exceedingly fear and quake. Moses was the mediator, Galatians chapter 3, verses 19 and 20, of the law as a type of Christ who, if we recall in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5, there's one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. He is the true lawgiver and the true grace giver. And Moses was just a symbol of him. You see, chapters 21 through 23, the Ten Commandments are now applied to daily life. All of the things in chapters 21 through 23, the various commandments, all fit in in chapter 20 with those Ten Commandments and how we're to apply them, and how they're to work out both in the religious and civil life of the people. Whatever you do right here, let me notice this. You can distinguish the ceremonies from the moral law, but you cannot separate the civil life from the moral law. Morality is a civil virtue. Immorality is a civil disgrace. Remember Proverbs 14:34. Righteousness exalteth a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. Remember, we have to look at these things in chapters 21 through 23 are, in a sense, commentary and application upon chapter 20. It, it, you look at it this way. Chapter 20 is a sermon. Chapters 21 through 23 are the concluding application. Then you move on to chapter 24, and there's a parallel. Paul mentions this, or whomever it is that wrote Hebrews chapter 9, verses 16 through 28. There's the dedication with blood. There is no true covenant with God and no forgiveness of sins, according to Hebrews 9, verse 22, apart from the shedding of blood, which is just another way of saying the giving of a life. Remember, the life of the flesh is in the blood, according to Leviticus 17. So when blood is shed, that is the symbol of a life being given, of a death occurring. We're not God's people apart from the shed blood of Christ. Never can never will be. It matters not whether a person can baptize or a church member or what religious profession they make. Their profession must be a true profession of true faith that comes and brings the cleansing of the blood of Christ to us by the grace of God. You see in chapters 25 through 40, the law of ceremonies. Moses in Mount Sinai receives the instruction. There's a pattern we can read of in Hebrews chapters 8 and 9. Um, John chapter 1 verse 14 tells us that Jesus is the true tabernacle. The word was made flesh and dwelt among us or tabernacled among us. And we beheld his glory. The glory is the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. 
the this is a symbol of Jesus. It's a picture of Jesus dwelling among us and the glory of God being in Christ. It's confined there to Israel, even though, and it's only accessible by the priest. But in Jesus, the whole world, he's the true light, which lighteth every man that cometh into the world. He's the true tabernacle. It's also a picture of the church. You can read in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 18 through 22, as well as in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. We're built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, a tabernacle and temple fit for the Lord to dwell in us by His Spirit. And so there are things that we can see and parallels we can see and look at between all of the furniture and the rituals that point us to our walk with God and what God does, has done, is doing, and shall do and will do for us through Christ Jesus. You'll notice chapters 32 and 34. There's a, uh, another theme here. There's a fall. There's judgment, there's redemption, there's a promise. They fall into the horrible sin of idolatry. They are judged, many die that day. They are redeemed, as Moses in chapters 32, verse 33, chapter 33, verse 23, Moses intercedes for them. Redemption does not come apart from intercession. Notice Jesus is our great intercession and he lives forever according to Hebrews 7, verses 25 and 26, to make intercession for us, as well as Romans 8, 33 through 39. And then after intercession is the promise, once again, that my presence, my angel, my person, will go with you and give you rest. His presence and his promise, and Moses sees the glory of God in the promise. And he has, has the assurance of God keeping his promise because God shows him his glory and it reassures him. God's glory is visible not so much to the naked eye as it is glory visible in his attributes in chapter 33 verses 15 through 34 verse 9. Uh, he's spoken of, remember, as the invisible God in Colossians 1 and 15. Visible in Christ yet not seen by men in John chapter 1 verses 14 through 18. And even now, we don't see Christ. In 1 John chapter 3, verses 1 through 3, but we'll see him as he is. And that's when we're changed. But we do see him, according to 1 Peter chapter 1, by faith, and not seeing him by the eyes, we still rejoice. We join speakable and full of glory. Come to chapters 35 through 40, you see the preparation for the tabernacle. They gather materials, they build, they dedicate it. There are instructions in chapters 35 through 36 verse 7 concerning given they are commanded to give I love this corresponding with 2nd Corinthians chapter 8 verses 1 through 15 giving is performed willingly and even though um, Paul commands them to give willingly there's um, no command to Israel about giving to others I mean to to the Corinthians, and yet Paul builds upon Israel. Quotes from some of these things that happen here. And there's no contradiction between commandment and willing service. They give willingly. Israel gave willingly. Um, Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 through 16, we're commanded to obey God willingly because He is at work within us. They were glad to give. We're taught to be glad to give. 
There's not a, notice this again, there is not a contradiction between a command to give and one's willingness to give. Every command that is given is not um, affected by force. God has never made us, knocked us over the head or slashed us across the back and made us do anything. Everything you and I do, we do by choice. We may be chastened to change our hearts and change our minds and we're humbled down, but we can resist and die or we can willingly humble down and choose and find ourselves glad in so doing and blessed in so doing. I love chapter 36, verses 1 through 7. The people gave with great fervor, gave with great generosity as well. And Moses finally had to tell them to stop. Chapters 35, verse 30 through chapter 39, verse 42. God directed. He gave them wisdom and skill. So they built it. Moses blessed the people. There's a corresponding thing going back to the creation. God creates man, commands man, blesses man. In Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 28. Then he creates the people, commands the people. And they're blessed in their obedience. And there's a corresponding thing in Revelation 22, verses 14 through 15, telling us who the blessed people are who have the right to partake of the tree of life and enter into the city that characterized by obedience. Finally, you see the tabernacle. It's erected. The priests are consecrated. The tabernacle is dedicated. And the Lord gives his visible presence there. So, just as the Lord led Israel by his presence in the cloud, he now leads us by his spirit. He did that as the cloud would stay by the tabernacle. When the cloud would move, they moved the tabernacle. The people moved. So God will take the tabernacle upon earth, the church, the true tabernacle in heaven, Christ, and by his spirit in conjunction with Christ's word and the church following Christ, the individuals are led by God as well. We cannot expect to enjoy God's blessings as we should apart from these. Two things we need to note going back to chapter 16 and 17. There's God giving manna, bread from heaven, fulfilled in Christ, according to John chapter 6, the true bread from heaven, water from a rock, fulfilled in Christ. Said Christ was even that very rock in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 through 4. And it's interesting to note that that follows Israel's baptism. Baptism, eating spiritual meat, drinking spiritual drink. They had a baptism, then they had a communion. Just like the church. We're bought by blood, redeemed by God's power. We're baptized in identification with Christ, and then we partake of communion. They're parallels. Why? Because the church is not so much of a, an entity that is separate from Israel as it is an entity that is a continuity of the promises of God, of the work of God. You look at Ephesians chapter 2 sometime, and I hope we can delve into that later. The church is the conjunction of the conjoining of the people of God into one new man or one tabernacle of God through the Spirit. And then you have the local church expressing that as Israel as a localized nation expressed the work of God in their locality. And we need to keep all of these things in mind. Then notice Exodus chapter 18 with good godly instruction, Moses established a godly order. Uh, look at the notes. 
read the notes, read the text there, because remember that order is a thing of God, and it is important in a society, in a home, and if that's the case, it is also important in church. I want to just leave this with you. Israel had leadership. They did not do what they did by majority vote. Even when Moses, the type of Christ, left the scene and Joshua came on the scene, Joshua was the main leader. You had the elders in Israel who led their tribes and led their families, but they had to follow the leadership of the one man. We, in our day and time, have insisted so much on congregational government in our churches that we forget that we have Old Testament patterns that have been established for us to look at and to observe and to model ourselves after so that you see the Christ, the apostles, the pastors established in the church, deacons established in the church, and everybody feels their place, and we follow godly leadership. And oftentimes, many of our mistakes come from two problems. One, leadership becomes dictatorial. We have to, we have to not do that. Biblical leadership is not dictatorial, but it will tell you what to do. It will give you advice. Biblical leadership will tell you when you're wrong and rebuke you when you're wrong. Biblical leadership will veto things, and you can overrule them if you want. By the way, did you notice, know that in Numbers chapter 14 that Moses was voted out by Israel? It didn't last, but he was. But biblical leadership will also serve. And when we follow leadership that is biblical leadership, we go where God wants us to be. Many, many times, much of what goes on in our congregational run, congregationally run Baptist churches has more akin to the book of Judges where every man did that which was right in his own sight rather than Joshua and the days of Moses. Something to think on. But the book of Exodus, when you look at all these things, is a very exciting book. It's a very instructive book. It's a book in which we need to go much, much deeper and deal with much more intensely and spend much more time with because there are so many effects that it has on the New Testament. Let us never forget. Please, brethren, let us never forget. The Old Testament is the foundation for the New. You find Jesus in the Old Testament. You find the ways of God in the New Testament. And much of the New Testament will be dark to us until we read and know the Old Testament. May God bless you, and I hope this is a blessing to your heart. And Lord willing, we'll come back next week and start with the business.